It is the Christmas season. It's time. It's coming near. We love the Christmas season. We love all the excitement that comes with it. I, I, I tend to be fairly sentimental. I love Christmas. It's a great time of year. I do not listen to Christmas music, particularly secular Christmas music, before Thanksgiving. I just think that's a sin. But it is certainly fine to listen to Christmas music, to celebrate, to set our minds and our hearts and attention upon the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who came according to the promise of God. This morning, we're going to take just a few minutes. We're going to look at a promise kept. Have you ever been promised something and you waited for its fulfillment? I was thinking as I was looking at some of the Old Testament passages that we've been studying in Sunday school and just in reflection for this. And I remember that there was a man named Abraham who was married to a beautiful woman whose name was Sarah. And they had no kids, which was kind of difficult for him. His name meant great father. And he had no children. And God entered into a covenant with him. And God said, I'm going to make you a father of many nations your descendants would be like the sands on the seashore like the stars in the heavens and through your descendants a prophetic message I'm going to bless all the nations of the world I bet Abraham was excited I am confident that he went home and he told Sarah Sarah get ready we're going to have kids family's coming but a year passes and then two Abraham is no longer a young man. Third year passes and a fourth and a fifth. God has promised, but where's, where's the reality of his promise? Six years pass and then eight and then ten and then twelve. Where's the reality of his promise? Abraham and Sarah, of course, think, well, maybe we're supposed to be doing something <laughs> on our own. They devise a, an alternate plan which did not work out well. We see the consequences of that yet today. And yet some 15, 18 years, following the original promise of God, Isaac is born. Isaac, whose name is Laughter. Can you imagine waiting that long for a promise to be fulfilled? Just waiting and waiting on a promise to be fulfilled. A lot of us can. We've been given promises, and sometimes the delay in their fulfillment has been so long we don't even recognize them as promises anymore. Maybe they just wishful thinking. Maybe it's just something that they intended to do, but it's never going to happen. Imagine a promise that is hundreds of years in the making. Not only that, imagine a promise that is hundreds of years in the making, but a promise that is given piecemeal. It's given a statement here and a phrase there and a word here and then a message there. But cumulatively, the promise is abundantly clear. There is a need for a Savior. And God, our Father, has promised to send a Savior. We'll be His people. He'll be our God. He's going to send the Messiah, the Anointed One, who will deliver us. But again, I will tell you, it's been a long time. been waiting not 10 years, not 15 years, not 20 years, not 25 years, but a century or more, four centuries, five centuries for the promise to be fulfilled. This morning, we're going to look at a promise kept. We're going to take a time to look at, frankly, we'll start with the miracle of predictive prophecy. The Word of God is a wonderful, 
wonderful book that God has written, that God has given to us. But it's more than a book. It is a collection of 66 books. It was written by more than 40 men over a period of more than 1,500 years. And it is a collection of books that together tell one story. It is the story of God's grace. It is the story of God's love. It is the story of God's plan and his working through history. And it culminates, history culminates in what we're going to be talking about this morning. A promise made, a promise kept. What Scott read this morning was, can, can you imagine, by the way, what it must have been like to have been those disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 23? By the way, if y'all are cold, just huddle together a little bit closer, but do it appropriately. It's chilly in here, I know. I'm, I, matter of fact, somebody's got the air conditioner blowing up here. If y'all want to turn that off, that'd be great. But can you imagine? I'm, I'm going to move out of the wind. Can you imagine? <laughs> Sorry. Can you imagine what it would have been like to have been those, those, uh, those apostles? They've been following the Lord Jesus Christ, they knew the promise. They knew the promise that God would use one of Abraham's descendants to be a blessing to all the nations. They knew the promise to David that from his lineage and through his descendants, a new king would come who would set his people free. They were expecting all these great miraculous things to take place, and they knew Jesus was the fulfillment of his promise. They knew it. And yet somehow they must have been wrong because they saw him on a cross and they saw him broken and beaten. They saw him subjugated at the hands of Roman soldiers and they saw the life leave his body. I, I, I can't imagine what it must have been like. I know that they were on the road to Emmaus. They were headed out and Jesus appears. And they don't recognize him, but they explain what's been going on and they explain their confusion. And Jesus begins to speak to them. And what does Jesus tell them? He takes them all the way back to Moses, the writings of Moses. He takes them to Genesis, folks, and Exodus. He takes them to some of the signs in Leviticus. He walks them through the promise of God to David and then to Solomon. He walks them through the prophets and the declaration of the prophets. He opens the scriptures to them. You know he went to Isaiah. And he opened the book of Isaiah and he opened to the section that we now have in chapter 53 where it talks about the suffering servant, the one who is slain from the foundation of the world, the one who must be crushed for the sins of his people. And as he opens the scripture to them, their hearts burn within them. What a miracle, a promise made and a promise kept. But all prophecies aren't clear. Are you guys students of the Old Testament? Sometimes when you read an Old Testament prophecy, it's confusing. It's confusing because it seems to say different things about the same person. We know that it's God's word. Hebrews chapter 1 says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But now in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he anointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. God spoke then through the prophets. God has now spoken through his son. Peter 
was writing to believers. And in his second letter that we have recorded in Scripture, he encourages them to be spiritually mature through the Word of God that is the remedy for false teaching. And he deals with the issue of false prophets. There were people come around saying they were speaking the Word of God. And listen to what Peter says. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't make this up. When we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus, we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We walked with him. We saw him. We sat with him. We ate with him. When he received honor and glory from the Father, we were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the voice was born by him through the majestic glory. We were with him at his baptism when God spoke and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves, Peter says, heard this very voice come from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We've had the prophetic word more fully confirmed to us, to which you would do well to pay attention to, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What he's telling them is, you want to know what real prophecy is? Go look at the Word of God. Go look at the prophets that have been recorded and preserved. Go to Scripture. Prophecy is kind of a a difficult thing, though. There are some challenges with this. When God speaks to the future... Not all prophet, not everything the prophet said was future telling. It was many times foretelling, immediately applicable in the circumstances that they were. God speaking of himself. When he describes himself and the, 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 the Israelites who had left worshiping him and they had turned their backs on him and many of them followed idols. And of course, that is adultery of the worst kind, spiritual adultery, to be betrothed in a covenant relationship with God. And then to turn your back on him and idols. God speaking to the prophet Isaiah, condemning the worship of idols, says this in Isaiah 41. Speaking to an idol, make your case, says the Lord. You bring your proof. You bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the things that have happened, the former things, what they are, that we can consider them, that we may know their outcome. Or declare to us, if you're really a God, The things that are to come, tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God. Do good or do harm so that we can be dismayed or terrified. But you are nothing. Your work is less than nothing. You're an abomination. And And an abomination is the one who chooses you. He goes on to describe himself just a little while later. He says, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. God says, for I am God, and there is no other like me. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. The things that will be from before they have happened, from ancient times. I declare things not yet done, saying that my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, one who will come from the east to to conquer, The man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed, and I will do it. One of the many glorious truths of predictive prophecy is it gives us the veracity, the truth of God's word. It's trustworthy. It's a book like no other. It's amazing. 
in its content. But also it shows us the kind of God we serve, a God who is powerful, who is creator, who is sovereign, who works all things according to his purpose, who determines things and brings it. Well, simply put, he makes promises and he keeps them. Amen. I don't mean to, I don't mean to be too uh, much of a rhetorician up here this morning. We don't, we don't want a lot of flowery speech. We want to plain speak. God makes promises. God keeps his promises. Always. Always. About 27% of Scripture is predictive prophecy of things that are going to be coming. Now, some of them are things that have already happened. We just talked about Abraham, and God promised him, you and Sarah will have a son, and you will become the father of nations, and those things happen. There are things like the prophet Elijah prophesying to Jezebel her own doom in specificity before it happens, and then it happens just like it was prophesied. They're individual prophecies the prophet the prophecy of the conquering of the northern tribes in the northern kingdom by Assyria the many prophecies of the conquering of the southern kingdom of Jerusalem and Judah by Babylon and the prophecy of the 70 years in captivity the prophecy of the rebuilding of the temple and so there are a lot of prophecies that are done and, and completed some of them again are not clear until you actually see the completion of the prophecy and then all of a sudden, it begins to make sense. It begins to make sense. If you were a person reading the Old Testament, and there are those today who still do, Jewish people, but if you were living at a time in the past before the New Testament and you looked at all the prophecies regarding the Messiah, the promised one, you'd, you would be confused. You'd find many things that would be hard to understand or to resolve. You see prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the Messiah coming as a conquering king. But you also see prophecies defining him as a man of sorrow and a man of loneliness. You see some prophecies that say he'll be rejected by the world. But you'll see other prophecies that say the world will bow down to him in homage. You see prophecies that tell us he's the king of glory. He's the king of heaven. That he's the eternal savior. The desire of all nations. But then you have prophecies that say there's no beauty in him, that we should desire him. That he comes as a slave, a bloody, suffering, crucified, dead figure, rejected by men. And then there are prophecies that talk about him being raised from the dead and elevated to an everlasting kingdom. It is no surprise, by the way, that at the time of Christ, that Jesus was a controversial figure to those who were well-educated and well-versed in the Word of God because of what we've just seen. Even John the Baptist struggled with this. Do you remember that? In Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist has been taken prisoner. He sends messengers to Jesus to ask him a question. Do you remember what he asked him? Are you the one? Are you the one? Or should we be looking for another why did he ask him that do you remember what John the Baptist preached when he preached repent for the kingdom of the Lord is at hand listen the axe is going to be laid to the root Jesus is coming in judgment he's coming in power he's coming to fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament repent and so there was even confusion in John the Baptist's mind about which prophecies which aspect of these prophecies were finding their completion in the incarnation, at the advent, the coming of Christ, and which ones would 
be scheduled for a later date at a later time. Jesus, of course, responds to them. I'll just read it for you, Matthew chapter 11. Jesus responds to them. He said, go and tell John what you see and what you hear. What do they see and what do they hear? The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. The leopards are cleansed. Le- the leopards. The lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. And then he goes on with kind of a little charge. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What's he saying to John? He's saying to John, yes, those are prophecies that you're anticipating, and certainly those are prophecies that will be fulfilled. But what I am doing today is the fulfillment of prophecy. What I am doing today was told in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5 and 6, and Isaiah 61. Do you not remember what Isaiah said? Go and tell John, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor of the gospel preach to them. He reminded John that the ministry of mercy and compassion and healing was part of the messianic prophecy. When he says, don't take offense, he's saying, don't prejudge. He's saying, it's a rebuke. He's saying, back up a little bit. Don't stumble because of what you see. Wait for the full picture. These prophecies will be fulfilled. But I am fulfilling the prophecies that God gives or that in God's time at this place. John's trying to put together what God told him about the Messiah and what he's actually seeing. And Jesus is saying, trust me, don't stumble over this. Somebody looking at only the Old Testament sees the complexity of confusing statements about one person. And you can't find resolution until Jesus appears. And when Jesus appears, it all becomes clear. And I just want to walk us through some of the miracles of some of the predictive prophecies that we have found in the Gospel of Matthew. So open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. The book of Matthew, chapter 2. Your outline has the promise given and the promise kept. And we're going to talk about both of those together as we go through this recounting of the birth of Christ. To set the background for this, I do want to tell you that in chapter 1, Matthew is writing and it begins with a long list of names. It's the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is Matthew doing by giving Jesus' ancestral line? He's telling them, listen, the word of God is true. God promised that the Savior would come through the line of David. And here's his genealogy. Here's his ancestry. Here's the line that qualifies him to be the Savior. As he goes on in chapter 1, the birth of Christ is on this wise. When Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. What is Matthew saying here? He's saying the prophecy that we have in Isaiah 7 of this child being born of a virgin is true. And he is coming through Mary without the contribution of a human man conceived by the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, he culminates that in verse 22. He says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, 
a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which, by the way, means God with us. What a great blessing. What a miracle. Uh, are you guys good with geography? Can you read a map pretty well? No. Got a good sense of direction? I will tell you that normally I'm pretty good, and I don't get very lost very often. And I can look at a map and follow a map and read it. Nowadays, that's no longer much necessary because we have GPS, right? Suzanne and I were coming back from Knoxville yesterday, and we decided that in our GPS on Interstate 40, there are all these red lines. Now, I don't know if you know what that means, but we know what that means. It means you're going to be sitting in traffic. Well, we decided that we didn't want to sit in traffic. We'd rather be moving, even if it took us longer and further to be moving to get there. And so we took an alternate route home. And I will tell you that you can get here from there. But you can also get lost getting here from there. It can be a confusing route. Geography can be difficult. If you begin to look at the prophecies, we're going to look at geography in Matthew chapter 2. Because they seem to be contradictory. They seem to not make sense. There's an Old Testament prophecy that deals with the location called Bethlehem. And yet there's an Old Testament prophecy found in Hosea chapter 11 that deals with a place called Egypt. And yet there's an Old Testament prophecy that deals with a place called Ramah and weeping and gnashing. And there's an Old Testament prophecy that deals, uh, many Old Testament prophets represent Nazareth. And Jesus as the Nazarene. And all of these are related around the Messiah. And I want to see how all of this comes together in Matthew chapter 2. You'll remember this is the story of the wise men. To set the setting, Jesus is no longer an infant. Jesus is months old. Maybe a year, maybe a year and a half. We know that, uh, we know that because of the events that take place. After Jesus is born, probably directly responding to the prophecies of Daniel when he was in Nebuchadnezzar's court and later in Darius and later in the Persian courts, they knew that a king was to be born. And these wise men, these kingmakers came from the east and they came to Herod who fancied himself and was identified by Rome as the king of the Jews, the king of Judea. And they said, where's the king who is to be born? We've seen a star in the east and we've come to worship him. Well, Herod, of course, says, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, he doesn't say that. He doesn't know what they're talking about. But he goes to find out what they're talking about. When Herod the king heard this, this is verse 3, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. And they told him. And here's the deal. They knew. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's interesting. It's fascinating. Bethlehem. 
Bethlehem, not a, a place where kings are born. Bethlehem, a small village, a small town, and yet specifically identified by the prophet Micah. I wish we had time. I'd go back and set the setting for Micah. Micah was prophesying before the Babylonian captivity. Micah was prophesying against the rulers who had turned their back upon God. His prophecy is one of judgment, judgment against how the rulers are abusing and neglecting their people. Micah didn't come with a cheerful, positive outlook. Micah came declaring the righteousness required by God and their failure to satisfy that righteousness and the judgment that was coming. And yet, right in the middle of this, toward the end of his book, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, when he's talking about the future deliverance that is going to come, he says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. One who has always been, one who is from old of ancient days, is going to come from Bethlehem. You know the story, you've read it in Luke chapter 2. How that it was in the time of Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. You know how they went to the city of David. You know how Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born... Now they're no longer in a stable. Now they're in a home. Now they may be setting up their life as it is to go. But then the wise men directed come to Bethlehem. They're led by the Shekinah glory of God, the star that is over the house where Jesus is. They come in, these kingmakers, and they give them the gifts that they have prepared, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They honor him and they worship him. But rather than going back to Herod to let them know where he was, Herod told him to because he said, I want to go worship him as well. They were warned by an angel. Here's another prophetic declaration, not a positive one. Warned by an angel not to go back to Herod, and so they went home another way. But then so was Joseph. Joseph was warned as well. Verse 13 of Matthew chapter 2, they departed. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him. And he, Joseph, he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So we have not only Bethlehem, now we have a place of, of Egypt. This was to fulfill, very clearly stated here by Matthew, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Out of Egypt I have called my son. That's Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When you read that passage in Hosea, again, Hosea is declaring a prophecy. And what a prophecy. I don't know if you're familiar with the story of Hosea. Hosea was condemning the children of Israel for their unfaithfulness to God. And it was not only a message that he preached, it was a life that he lived out. Hosea married a woman whose name was Gomer, which was appropriate at the time. But Gomer wasn't very appropriate. Gomer was, Gomer was unfaithful to him. She was a prostitute, a harlot, even to the point of being bought and sold on the slave block. But Hosea went under the direction of God and purchased her back and brought her home, seeking to restore her. We have that picture in a cyclical fashion in the book of Hosea. And the story of Hosea is one of the unfaithfulness of God's people and God's continued faithfulness in seeking to rescue them and seeking to redeem them and his promise to one day 
bring them home. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And here he says, in Hosea chapter 1, he's speaking specifically of Israel. He even goes back and references how God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. But it applies, according to this passage, not only to Israel, but to this Messiah who is faithful, who accomplishes what God wants him to do. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So we've got not only a prophecy of Bethlehem, we've got the prophecy of out of Egypt. We could go into a lot about what they did while they were there, how long they were there. By the way, there are some really heretical writings about that, some called Gnostic writings. Uh, you can just ignore those. They're, they're of Satan, of what they say. But the scripture makes it clear that we have geography, Bethlehem. We have ge- geography, Egypt. But after they learned that Herod was dead, they were coming back. But they didn't go back to Bethlehem. Herod's son had taken over. And under the direct, by the way, while they were in Egypt or while they were fleeing to Egypt, Herod saw that he had been tricked. He became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had determined from the wise men. So Jesus could have been as old as two years old. And when, he, when, when, they were, when the children were killed, Herod saw that he had been tricked. This was done. He killed the children. This was, fulfilled. this was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 31. When he says, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in lamentation, Rachel Weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted, for they are no more. This is a reference to the many times destruction came upon the children in the families of Israel because of their disobedience. But it is applied specifically, according to Matthew and the Holy Spirit, to what happened when Herod killed the children in Bethlehem. Why Ramah? Ramah, again, is identified, is called a high place. There's a place called Ramah, just about a mile north of Bethlehem. Rachel's tomb is there. It was there where the slaughter happened. Rachel was again in a Ramah, weeping for her children. The sorrow of the bereaved mothers of Bethlehem can be turned to joy because the child who escapes Herod is finally killed, but he's killed as the savior of his people. The weeping is now. The joy comes later. So the king has to come to Bethlehem, as Micah said. He must come from Egypt, as Hosea foretold. And there must be weeping in Ramah, as Jeremiah declared. But now there's another location. It's the location of Nazareth. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to Israel. This is verse 20. Go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, again, giving God's provincial, uh, providential direction, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the city of Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled he shall be called a Nazarene. Can I tell you that you can see the hand of God in geography? How could one be from Bethlehem and be out of Egypt? How could one be associated with the weeping in Ramah and yet be a Nazarene? 
And it's confusing until Jesus comes on the scene. And every criteria, every prophecy is met. I will tell you, there's a lot in this for me, and I I won't belabor the point. But can I tell you that we have a powerful God? A God who brought his son through the birth of a virgin, the only one in history, the only one who will ever be. A God who not only created the world, a God who is faithful and just. And I'm going to, we know the power of God. We know the power of God in creation. We know the power of God to accomplish his purpose. But can I tell you that the story of prophecy in the Old Testament is a story of grace and love? I've heard a lot of people talk about the Old Testament as though God were mad, woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Then for 400 years it was silent and God took a nap. And then Jesus came in the New Testament. Now God's all love, joy, and peace and graciousness. And I will tell you that that is a caricature of the truth, and it is inaccurate as it can be. One of the things that we have become increasingly aware of as we just look at not only the prophecies of the Old Testament, but the history of the Old Testament, and where those prophets preached, is we see again and again a God who wants to save his people, a God who wants to be God to his people while they are his people, obedient, loving, serving, and following him. And the cycle that we see is the cycle of turning to God and then turning away. And then turning to God and then turning away. And then turning to God briefly and then falling away and falling further away and falling further away. A people in desperate need of a Savior. The flesh cannot accomplish what God can accomplish. You and I can't will ourselves into obedience to God. We can't will ourselves into a relationship with God. We can't train ourselves into a relationship with God. God has to begin and initiate a relationship with us. He has to make the way, and he did this through his son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, living perfectly, fully satisfying all the righteous requirements of the holy law of God, innocent, who goes to the cross in order that God's wrath against your sin and my sin might be poured upon him. And so our sin laid upon him, we become the righteousness of God in him. His righteousness applied to us. It's a story of love. It's a story of recurring grace. It's a story of forgiveness that boggles the mind. It's a story of of Christmas God is a God of power God is a God of love can I tell you this morning if nothing else you need to get this God is faithful God is faithful he never promises but that he does not perform he never promises but that he does not perform God always does what he says he's going to do why does that matter It matters to us because of the promises of God. It matters to us because in Christ Jesus, all of God's promises are fulfilled. The promises of salvation, of forgiveness, of cleansing, of new life. The promises of finding peace that passes understanding. The promises of finding joy unspeakable, full of glory. And because there are promises that are not yet fulfilled. 
You see, God's made promise that not only would Advent come, that Jesus would come as the suffering servant, that Jesus would come meek and humble and lowly, the Lamb of Judah. He is also, praise God, the Lion of Judah who's coming back. He's coming again. He's coming one day in judgment, in the day of the Lord. Judgment against sin. He's coming to reclaim His church, His people, His own. He's coming to establish His kingdom of which there shall be no end as he reigns in righteousness. Listen, God's faithful. And that's just good news for us. What Paul told Timothy, we need to be reminded of. Even when we're faithless, God is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Aren't you glad? This morning, the sermon's really simple. It's just a, a pointing us out of the prophecies, a promise that was made, a promise that was kept. In the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's a promise. Here's a, de- a description of what happened when Jesus came. From John's account of Christmas. I like John's account of Christmas. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. The same was with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And this life was the light of men. Here's the challenge. Though the light shone in darkness... In the darkness, King James Version, comprehended it not. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive them. But what happened? To all who did receive him, to believe in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of their own will. Remember what I just said. You can't will yourself into obedience. Or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Aren't you glad God keeps His promises? I hope you are. Hope you've been the recipient of those promises and you've experienced what it means to be cleansed and to be washed. That's what this Christmas season, that's what every Christmas season is all about. But I pray it's what this Christmas season is about for you. God is powerful. God loves you. And God is faithful. And he's demonstrated that love in the cross. He demonstrates that faithfulness every single day. As we go through this Christmas season, I pray that you'll become more and more aware of the reality of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who lives, who lives today, who is moving and working and active and obedient, that you will share the gospel, the good news of Christ, not only with yourself repeatedly, but with people you come in contact with We'll close with that. There are a lot of people who need to know the Lord. Amen? There are a lot of people who need to know the Lord. Will you be the one to, rem- to tell them that God has kept his promise in sending the Savior of the world? Father, thank you for the truth of Christmas. Thank you for the truth that Christ has come. Thank you that you always keep your promises, that you have kept your promises to us. We thank you for the birth of the Savior, and we thank you because of them. We have hope. This is the first Sunday of Advent. The hope has finally come into the world. You kept your promise, and Jesus was born. But, Father, he was born to live. He was born to die. He was born to be resurrected. He was born to ascend, and one day he is coming again. May we trust in your faithfulness and in your promises. In your name I pray. Amen.